good morning. I greet you in Jesus' name this morning. It's good to be here. Uh, it's been, I don't even know if I have a record of the last time I was here. I know that I did preach here before, but I don't really keep track of that necessarily. But it's been quite a few years. And, uh, yeah, I guess if Dwight and I connect anywhere, it'd be all the way back in, uh, in, uh, Switzerland probably about eight or nine generations ago. If, if that's even true, I'm not certain. I invite your attention to Psalms 118 this morning. I want to think about the church this morning. The title of the message is For Christ and His Church. As we think about the church being local, one of my classes at Bible school this term is Life in the local church, and now uh, this isn't necessarily a message that comes out of that class per se, but there's so much, uh, there's so much we can learn about the church, and we want to think about Christ and his, the, the, how he originated the church, and Christ being the cornerstone and the head of the church, and the, a couple of those things, and then bring it down to some things that challenge us personally as we think about the local church. Obviously, there is a universal church. It is worldwide. The scripture is very clear that, that in heaven there will be people there from every tongue and nation and tribe. And so that's going to be a wonderful time. But to, to try to, to try for us to individually try to say that we're only part of the universal church and not be part, not want to be part of a local church, there's a missing, there's a missing link because we can't be accountable to people on the other side of the world. We can have a tremendous uh, kinship with them. If you go travel, if you've ever been traveling and you meet people that profess Christianity, there's something beautiful about that. You have something in common immediately. But we're thinking about the church this morning, and and I would like for us to think of it as as the local body here. You are, if you're a member here at Prairie, and and this is your body, the Church of Jesus Christ. This body, this local body as well as the one back at Open Door where I come from, that local body. We are individually, individual local bodies, but we are part of the Grand Bride of Jesus Christ. In Psalm 118 here, there's just two verses, 22 and 23, that I want to springboard out of to begin with. It says this, Psalm 118, 22, The stone which the builder ref- builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Interesting verse in Psalms. And then if you turn with me to Matthew 21, we find here where Jesus refers to these verses. Matthew 21 and verse 42. Matthew twenty one forty two. Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the Scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's. <clears throat> this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. So we'll read there for now. 
So when Jesus talks about it, he refers to this verse in Psalms, and then he goes on and he says, Therefore I say unto you. But first he says, The stone which the builders rejected, and that's what was recorded in Psalms too. Who I think we know that it's really obvious that the stone is Jesus Christ, right? Because it said it's become the chief of the head. It's become the head cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. Scripture refers to Christ in so many different ways like that. He's the chief cornerstone. He's the head of the, he's the head of the, the headstone. He's the head of the church. The church is the bride of him. So he is also the bridegroom. Uh, maybe sometimes if you ever do a little study on all the different things Jesus Christ is called, even in comparison to just his church, you find that how, how true the words are. In scripture, I don't even know where that verse is. It talks about Jesus being all in all or everything. He's, he's everything. So question, who are the builders that he is referring to here? The stone which the builders rejected. And who is this nation that, that the, uh, that is the, let me just reread that again. Um, it will be given to a nation, verse 43, bringing forth the fruits thereof. Um, and then he says uh, a little in verse 44, Whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Talking about the stone, the rock, Jesus Christ. Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation. So, who are these builders? Who is this nation that's going to receive this kingdom of God? Just some questions to ponder. I believe that the builders that we're talking about here, that he, Jesus is talking about, are the religious leaders of the day. Those that were refusing Christ. We had that in our Sunday school lesson. Those that are refusing Christ, right? Those that just would not accept Him as God's Son. They would not accept Him as the Messiah. And and Jesus here is giving current news, but also prophetic news to them, saying, "This it's going to be taken from you. God, in the Old Testament, set up His nation Israel. And, and His nation Israel was His kingdom on earth. And through the nation Israel, through God's kingdom on earth, He set up and tore down other nations at times. But when we come to the New Testament and the Messiah comes, Jesus Christ comes into this earth, we have the, a new era of time coming in, the new dispensation, the New Testament. Jesus uses all these different phrases. And we have the new thing happening, and that is through Jesus Christ now and His church, the bride, now His kingdom becomes a spiritual kingdom here on earth, and it's no longer a physical kingdom. Jesus doesn't undo the old law, but he actually fulfills it by raising it to a new standard and really ultimately, probably, not probably, I believe, ultimately showing us God the Father's ultimate will for mankind to be part of his kingdom. So the builders are those that would ref- that were refusing who Jesus was. And he says, those builders refused the cornerstone. Who's this nation, this new nation in verse 43? 
kingdom of God shall be taken from you, taken from those builders that didn't want to use the right cornerstone, cornerstone, and it will be given to a nation that brings forth the fruit thereof. The nation, I believe, is those who recognize Jesus as the head of the church. So it's like a new people. So when we think about it, God had his people, the nation Israel, we call them the Jews today, and and when the church was ushered in on the day of Pentecost, the church was birthed, initially was birthed with the Jewish people. It was. But it wasn't very long till they began to push back, or a lot of them began to push back, and God's word goes out to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles then become part of God's kingdom as well through this new dispensation, this new way of Christ. So this new nation isn't necessarily Gentiles, but it's a combined group of people who are willing to accept Christ as their head. What are the fruits of this new nation? Well, that probably is a long a long question to answer, but two things that I think of especially that we need to have, that the church of Jesus Christ needs to have, fruits that the church of Jesus Christ needs to have, two things for sure. Um, Jesus talked about it numerous times. He said, you need to bring forth fruits, meat or suitable for repentance, right? And so the church of Jesus Christ, the true nation of God, the true ones that are following Christ, need to bring forth repentant, fruit of repentance. It's, it's a basic element of the church. And secondly, the whole, well, maybe it's two things, but I'm, I'm saying believing and obeying what Jesus says. We have, we have Christ's words here. We have everything that he gave us. Um, one of the, one of the things that I was really challenged with as, as I was teaching, as I'm working on teaching love and non-resistance class, it, it, one of the things that really challenged me is the fact that, you know, the early church, that when we read about the church in Acts, we have such an amazing, uh, advantage. We can actually go in the, in this book, the Bible, and read about that church and what they did. You know that when they were living that, they didn't have any of this. They were simply living out what they saw in Jesus Christ, their leader. And they were living it out in their personal lives. And then as time followed, shortly thereafter, things began to be written down. And we have that advantage today. But those that believe and obey what Jesus says, that's that's largely what this nation is going to be like. That's largely what the church is made up of. Those that have repented of their sin, that have turned from their wickedness in whatever form it is, and that are now turning and following, believing on Jesus and following Him in His way. That's the basis of the church of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. I was going to mention in the beginning, I don't know if the word got around to the local church or not, but it's been a bit of sickness going through the Bible school, and I think we're coming out of it. I think it's just about cleared. Um, most people are feeling much better, and uh, we had about a week of of chorus being attended a little slimly and and um, not sounding like it should when you're one week away from a prayer room. So uh, it's starting to come around. But uh, I managed to get a cold through the deal. You can't hardly escape things when you're in 
in that kind of proximity with everything that's going on. And, and uh, <clears throat> so this morning I feel fine. My voice is a little weird. But uh, the funny thing is I can't... It sort of feels like I have a loudspeaker on in my head. But I'm not sure if I'm loud or if I'm quiet. So excuse me if I'm too loud or too quiet. I, hopefully it's fine. But I something's ringing a little bit. Not badly. Just can't quite tell. It doesn't seem normal. First Peter 2, starting at verse 7 reading a few verses here. These are really familiar verses, but they talk about um, the whole idea of uh, how we should live. But here in verse 7, he, he goes on and he says, Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. That's Jesus Christ. But un- if we believe, then Jesus Christ is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. What impresses me here is that Jesus Christ is the head cornerstone of the church, whether we believe or whether we do not. The fact that someone will disbelieve or not have belief in Jesus Christ does not change who he is. Okay, Um, We could say it even simpler than that, and that is that whether I believe something or not doesn't change the truth, right? We, We live in a world that that likes to have truth as a as a relevant thing. It, it, truth is good for you and it's good for me, but we can believe what our truth is. That's what society would like to tell us. And so, if it's not true to me, then I'm then I'm uh, exempt from believing in it because it's not true to me. That's not the way truth works. Truth is absolute. It doesn't change. It's not affected by whether I believe it or not. And, and it's the same with Jesus Christ here, because this is a truth. This is an item of truth, that Jesus Christ is the head of the corner. Verse 8, I want to keep reading there. And a stone of stumbling. So for the ones, the difference is, if we believe, he is not a stone of stumbling to us. But if we don't believe, he becomes a stone of stumbling. Stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. So I believe we see from that that all of mankind was appointed to follow after Christ. That's the that's the desire of, of God, that the human race would follow after Jesus Christ. But those that refuse to believe don't change his status, but it affects their life. <clears throat> Let's read verses 9 and 10 here yet. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So the same thing that happened when Christ first came, when he was here on earth, the same thing that happened in our Sunday school lesson today, it's continuing to happen today. There are people that refuse to believe. But whether we believe or not does not change the standing of Christ. He continues to be the cornerstone. He continues to be the head. And another thing that we see here is that it is Jesus choosing us, not us choosing him. And that's that's a one that I think is important for us to remember <clears throat> as we go through life. It's easy for us to get wrapped up in the idea, and it's kind of all around us, maybe in Christendom in general, 
um, the idea that we need to go seek Jesus. We need to find Jesus. Um, and and there's while well, there's it's not a, completely a falsehood, the reality is that Jesus seeks us. And and the Bible tells us that we can't come to him unless we're drawn to him through the Father, through the Holy Spirit, so on. And so we cannot choose. It's not possible for you and I to choose Jesus if he hadn't chosen us. Okay? If it were not for his work of salvation, his work of on the cross and going into the grave and rising again, if it were not for his work and his desire to, to win or to buy back the human race, then there wouldn't be anything we could do to better ourselves. Apart from the work of Christ, we are nothing. We are nothing. And we as individuals and as a body are to be showing forth the glory of the glory of Jesus Christ. He has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that's you as an individual and that's you as a body. <clears throat> Notice here too that there was no people. Without Jesus Christ there is no church. Without Jesus Christ there is no chosen people for the ultimate end in heaven and so that the work of christ is key in in that whole thing it's all about what he did it's not what about it's not about what i did or what you did or any one of us okay i'd like to go to ephesians chapter one The subject of the church is a very interesting one in that it involves individual people, but it involves a body. And uh, we could go to a lot of places, and the, probably the most familiar of that whole concept is 1 Corinthians 12, where, where uh, Paul writes to the Corinthians there, and he compares the body, the human body, to the body of, of Christ. It's a really good comparison. It's a good study. But we're not going to look at that this morning. I want to... We'll look at these words here in Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading at verse 10 and read to the end of the chapter. I just want you to think about how does this apply to you as an individual and you in the church, and how does it, how does it apply to Christ in the church? Now, um, some of these verses don't speak about the church per se, um, but as we get toward the end of the chapter, it does. And verse 10 begins with this thought that in the dispensation of the fullness of times... He might gather together in one all things in Christ. And that would be a reference to the church. In the future yet, probably. Because there's time coming when it's all going to be gathered together. And that's still coming up. Both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. So that, I believe, is a reference to the universal church of Christ, which we all want to be part of. Through the local body. Verse 11. In whom also we we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom 
and whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that holy promise, spirit of promise, which is the earnest <clears throat> of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. That word earnest is like a down payment, which is, it's like we're the, the down, it's a down payment of our inheritance. And that's the Holy Spirit. Verse 15, wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward, who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. <clears throat> the church, which is the bride of Christ, will someday be gathered together with him. We know that. We've been taught that. I hope that we continue to teach that, that point. Someday the church, the bride of Christ, can all be gathered together with him. But until then, we as individual local bodies continue to gather together with ourselves. We gather together and we worship this Jesus Christ, the one that is the head of the body. Apart from Christ, we have no church or standing with God. It, it doesn't exist apart from Christ. We can, there's lots of organizations in this world, lots of groups of people that get together under the title of or under the heading of whatever it is and under the, under the uh, purpose of getting a certain thing accomplished, something or other accomplished. Um, but there's only one church and that's the church of Jesus Christ and it would not exist except for the work of Christ himself. So there is no standing even with God apart from Jesus Christ. <clears throat> now the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is dwelling in those who believe in him. It's there. The power is available to us. The Holy Spirit is part of the new birth experience. And as we claim Christ as our, as we accept Christ as our Savior and we allow him to, to pursue us and we respond to that, to that pursuit, we allow him to become our savior and our Lord. And with that, we have the Holy Spirit within us. That Holy Spirit gives us the power. Um, and I, I think we don't think about this often enough or, or in the right way, maybe many times. Maybe I'm only revealing myself, but, um, you know, how much power does it take to raise people from the dead and, and to heal lepers and to do all these things that Jesus did. We read about the, we read through the gospels and see all the miracles that Jesus did. He just, with his word, just, yeah, you know, someone said, the, the leper said, you know, Lord, if you will, you, you could heal me. And he said, I will. And the leprosy's healed, right? 
um, just by His Word. And we think of God Himself as He, at the time of creation, let there be this and that and all the things we see and they just come to existence. God and His ability to speak into existence. What kind of power does that take? What kind of power did it take to bring Christ out of the grave? Most of that power eludes us as humans. It's something beyond what we can imagine. But yet, we should have a personal experience with that power because within our hearts, we have the Holy Spirit. Within our beings, we have the Holy Spirit. And it gives us the ability to live above sin and above the law. And apart from those things, we can live in Christ above these things. That's something that our worldly neighbors know nothing of. They don't have that power. So we have that power. Do we do we put it to work? Do we use it? Or do we kind of crumble down under temptation and and wonder why why I goofed up again or whatever, you know. The power is there. We need to tap into it. Now what I really like here about these verses are uh, kind of was a new thought to me actually as we look at the end of this chapter. Um, see what it says here. In the last couple of verses, um, first of all in verse 21 it says that that in verses 20 and 21 it talks about the name of Christ um, or the position of Christ being placed at the right hand and beside God, we know that that's borne out in Scripture, um, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. Jesus Christ is above all things. He's above all things. Then in verse 22 and 23, he says this, He has put all things under the feet of Jesus. Okay, so he first says, the name and the position of Jesus is above all things, Therefore, everything is under the feet of Jesus. Everything's beneath Him. He's above all. And then He says, gave to Jesus to be the head over all things the church. So, this was a word picture that I hadn't seen before. If we have Christ the head, we know that Christ is the head of the church. We, we've, see, we've heard that one often enough, right? Christ is the head. The church is the body. It says in verse 23, uh, the end of verse 22, he gave Christ to be the head over all things the church, which is his body. Verse 23. And of him that filleth all in all. So I had never really pictured this before, but if Christ is the head and the church is the body, and all things are under the feet of Christ. Where does that put the church? It's an interesting word picture. We don't want to abuse anything. But I believe that under Christ, the church has power over, over all things, really. The church has power. The church is given the, the ability to make decisions. The church isn't free to go outside of Christ and abuse that power. No. We have to stay under Christ. We're, we're the body. We're connected to the head. And if we disconnect from the head, we leave that authority structure that we have, um, we will be powerless, actually. But in Christ, under Christ, as, as part of the body of Christ, and as long as we're connected to the head, Jesus Christ, things are under the church. 
We can look at that in a in the, in the idea of power. I already talked about the power that's in you. Same powers in you that brought Christ from the dead. Okay, so as a human being, you have enough power to overcome. You have enough power to overcome sin. You can never blame God or anyone else when you succumb to sin. You can only blame yourself because the power is available to you to overcome that sin. So as individuals, we have that power. We're over things. As the church, it becomes even more powerful in a sense because now we have a collective group of people who have that power. And not only a bunch of individuals sitting here that have that power, but as we interconnect and interwork and interlock and become accountable to each other, that power only magnifies itself because now it's not just... Uh, we got 61. It's not just 61 different people, all with the ability to overcome Satan, okay? But it's 61 people who that have that ability personally, but then as they, as a network, so to speak, that power is just, I don't know what the multiplier would be. I have no idea. Uh, it doesn't really matter what you can use any number because uh, the power of God is infinite, right? It's not stoppable. It's not overcome. So, as individuals, we have the power to overcome, but as a group of believers, uh, and, and the reason I'm maybe pounding on this point is, we, we as individuals forget, and we don't get the, the, the validity and the, and the, uh, the ability that, that the Church of Jesus Christ gives us. We don't, we, we underestimate what the local body can do for itself. And maybe that's where you have to go to 1 Corinthians 12 and just read through that again if you think about it this week sometime. It's so common and we read it and, and we just kind of gloss over it. But you know, the body, the body just, and we'll be talking about that a little bit here a little later, but the body works for itself. It works for itself. It works for the benefit of itself. And the church of Jesus Christ is a body. It's the body of Christ. It's the bride of Christ, but it's the body of Christ. And that body needs to work for the edification of itself. God has put all things under Jesus' feet. He is the head. The church is the body. And under Christ, the church has authority over all things. Now we want to think about the response to that as us as redeemed, those of us that are in the church. What is our response? Turn to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10 and beginning at verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that, faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. As we had faith to come to Christ in the first place, 
we need to continue that faith in remaining close to Him for our continual cleansing. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It would be so easy if all the Christian life included, or if all it was, was a simple one-time affirmation that I am a child of God, and then I can just go on with life. Wouldn't that be easy? Or in another sense, the Christian life would be really easy as well if if you could serve Christ how you would like to do it, and I could do it like I would like to do it, and everyone here could just do it like they would like to do it. That would make, in the humanly speaking, that would make it easy, make the Christian life easy. The Christian life is not that way. It's not that way. We're called to give up self. We're called to to go to the cross, so to speak. We're called to be crucified personally, daily. And so as we had faith, when we first come to Christ and we acknowledge Him as our Savior and we give up self and we give up sin, that is a process that has to continue. It goes on and on into the future. We must not doubt his power. I already talked about that power. But you have it here again. Uh, hold fast to profession of faith without wavering. And then in parentheses there, if you read, um, always enjoy reading the King James Version apart from the parentheses because it gives you a better feel for what's being said. And if you do that there, he says, uh, verse 22, let us hold fast to profession of our faith without wavering and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. So, you see, but in the parentheses, that little, one little thing just kind of stuck in there. He is faithful that promised. So the power's there. It's available. Jesus is there. He's faithful. He's faithful to take you through. He's faithful to take all of us through to the end. We are never out of his reach. There's a few things we have to do. We have to confess our sin. We have to keep our conscience clear and keep ourselves pure. These things are all mentioned here at least or alluded to. We have to do these things. There's things we need to do, okay? But we are never out of the reach of God, out of the reach of Christ. He's always there when we need Him. He said, God said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. We are supposed to steadfastly hold on to our faith. Steadfastly hold on to our faith. As he says in Jude, I believe it's in the book of Jude, third verse or so, earnestly contend for the faith. Earnestly contend for the faith. We need to go after the faith. We need to work at it. We need to stick to it. We need to find out what we believe and stick to it. Not like the Pharisees did, right? But in a way that we're open continually to God's Word, God's Spirit working in our heart. And none of us have reached perfection we have not reached perfection. And we will not reach perfection here on earth. But it's not an excuse to sin, as it was read there in Romans. Because we're not perfect and because we won't actually be able to gain perfection here on earth completely, does not give us excuse to sin. It gives us more reason to seek after following after Christ. That's what it does. Verse 24 there. Let us consider one another to provoke on the love and good works. Um, in our English language today, we don't like the word provoke very much. It's 
kind of provoking, isn't it? <laughs> we don't like to use that word. It's kind of got a negative connotation. But this phrase here is not negative in any way. It's actually a positive method. And um, I like the way the NIV puts this verse. It says, it spins it into a positive sound, but let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good works. Okay, so how can you, how can I, how can we together spur each other on, help each other on? Remember I was talking about within our individual lives, we have the, the ability to overcome Satan. But as a collective group, that only magnifies so how are you and I going to, as in the collective body, in the local body, how are you and I going to help each other along in that walk? How are we going to spur each other on? Every now and then, whatever, you know, in the, in the, it's like if you're on a job somewhere and it's getting long and it's getting tiresome and some people are getting tired and some people are getting tired of the work and, you know, you got all these things going on, but the job got to get finished. How do you, how, what do you do? You gotta spur, you gotta somehow or other get the spirit going. You gotta get things moving again. You gotta spur each other on. Um, and it could be done in a negative way maybe, but it's much more, uh, give a much better results if it's done in a positive way. So let's not cut each other down and negatively say things about each other that will try to bring the other person back around, but let's be positive. And encourage on in the Christian life. <clears throat> and we automatically think of that as being, you know, when somebody's floundering or somebody maybe failed or that to get behind them and positively encourage them. Well, that's great. But if we could, if we could, um, somehow or other be part of that kind of a network before those things happen, that would be even better. If we could encourage each other and spur each other on in the, uh, in love and good deeds. Everything that takes place within the body is for its own edification. Within your physical body, when your physical body stops edifying itself, or when something is allowed in there that doesn't belong in there, you, something happens, and we, we call it sickness, we call it disease, we call it whatever, okay? But whenever there's, in the human, in the physical human body, whenever there's disease or sickness, it's because something wasn't quite perfect something wasn't quite like it belongs and so we go to the doctor we go here we go there and we try to get that fixed back up try to get it straightened out um so if we don't want the body to be diseased if we don't want the local body of jesus christ the church of jesus christ to be diseased then we need to be building each other up and encouraging each other along helping each other Yes, when we see someone struggling, helping that person, but even helping them and encouraging each other when with when there's no uh, no notable struggle necessarily, we're supposed to always be building each other up. Then he says, "Do not give up meeting together. Don't give up meeting together." I don't know how it is here. I have no idea. I just know what it's like back home and I think human beings are similar no matter where you go probably um, you might not have some influences here that that we have in Pennsylvania being around an area that has a lot more Mennonite population there's maybe more distractions in that sense but what decides whether you will be in church when the doors are open 
Are you ready to give it up? Or are you, ready, are you making sure that you don't give it up? Um, do you decide that whether, is it decided whether or not you had a good day? Like what about, a, you know, a midweek service or whatever? I don't know about you, but I've had times where it's prayer meeting night and, and, and the last thing I feel like doing is getting ready to go to church at a hard day or whatever. But most times I think we find that if we put the effort forth and we go and apply ourselves, it's a tremendous blessing. And we come away, <clears throat> I've come away from prayer meeting feeling more energized than when I went. And I think that's what we need. That's what we need the body for. Do we decide whether we're going to go or not? If, uh, you know, whether or not the children want to go or whether the subject sounds interesting or, or, or do you just plan to go and you're going to be there when the doors are open? Does your social life revolve around your church life or is it the other way around? And maybe, you know, in, in a setting like this, you might not have as much of that going on. You know, maybe have family members in other churches or that kind of thing. There's always these things that push and pull and, and what, what's going to decide whether I come to church or not? <clears throat> I would suggest that your church involvement should be prioritized above other events. And if you value the body of Christ, it will be important to be together with that body. Just the same as we don't, it's not real fun to lose a finger or lose a limb or lose something in our physical body. We can live without it. We'll eventually adjust. Um, but there should be, there should be, it should feel like something's missing when someone's not along. Now this one uh, phrase here yet on the end, <clears throat> I always kind of excused it as another phrase saying sort of the same thing where he says in the end of verse 25, but not, not forsaking assembly of ourselves together, but exhorting one another and so much this, so much the more as you see the day approaching. I don't plan to spend, spend a lot of time about that. I think we know we're living in the last day and, and so we should get more intent about this. But what about this exhorting one another? In a sense, when I read that just through those verses, I feel like that's a reiteration of, of some of what I've already said. But I believe there's more to it than that. And that, and, uh, the exhorting could be encouraging, but, I, encouragement, but I believe that it also talks about the, it's, it's referring to the idea of teaching. When you think of exhortation, it could be teaching and preaching and those kinds of things. And so, we're not only called to get together and encourage each other in the sense that we spur each other on in the Christian life, that's true, but we also need to be exhorting and encouraging in that sense. So don't stop preaching. Don't stop teaching. Um, what is your response to the opportunity to teach? To the what's? How do you respond when someone says, well, I need a teacher next Sunday, or I need somebody to teach this class or that class? What is your response? You know, why would you turn down the chance to build God's kingdom? Why would anybody turn down the chance or the, the, the opportunity? Maybe that's a better way to say it. Why would we turn down the opportunity to build the kingdom of God that we're all part of and we want to be part of? We don't want to be left out. All of us would say, we don't want to be left out in this kingdom. We want to be part of it. But we like to just kind of come and sit and get a ride, right? Maybe, maybe that doesn't apply to you all here at all. I'm not sure, but... You know, what is, I, it, either way we could take it as, as an encouragement that 
Let's plug in and let's be part of this group. And if it means teaching, yes, I'll teach because it's an opportunity for me to help to share in the building of this kingdom. We all enjoy when others teach. You all enjoy, I guess you're enjoying that I came to preach, but you know, it would have been fun for me to sit here and listen to one of your ministers preach because that's, that's enjoyable, right? But we need to do our part. We, we do what we can when the time comes. Question to close with, is the position and the wander of the body of Christ, the church, the local body, is it marvelous in your eyes? Is it marvelous in your eyes? It is the Lord's doing, and so is it marvelous in your eyes? Let's kneel together to pray. Dear Lord, we thank you this morning for your church. We thank you for believers of like faith that we can meet together with and that we can be encouraged and challenged on, spurred on in our Christian life. Thank you, Lord, that you have seen fit to send your Son, Jesus Christ, so that we would have a way back to God. And through doing that, you've created this spiritual kingdom of the church, which you are the head. I pray, Lord, you would keep us under you as head. Help us, Lord, to always seek your will and desire for our lives. Thank you for all that you do for us as we continue to serve you. Thank you for your spirit and the power that gives us. Lord, help us to plug in and tap into each other and the networking of the power of Jesus Christ in the church. I pray, Lord, that you would make this local body strong and encourage them on to continue living for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.